This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased today because we have with us Dr. Joshua Paul Dale, who's written a really interesting book that has a lot of relevance, I think, to many of our kind of everyday lives, whether we realize it or not, and pokes at that and goes, hang on, there's a load of really interesting neuroscience questions, historical questions, cultural questions behind it. And because the book is titled Irresistible, How Cuteness Wired Our Brains and Conquered the World, published by Profile Books in 2023, This is a very cool book, um, introducing, among other things, cuteness studies as a field of academic inquiry, and really just helping us understand why are there so many cute things and what's going on here? So Joshua, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast to tell us about everything cute. Oh, thanks very much for having me. Could you start us off, please, by introducing yourself a little bit and explaining why you decided to write this book? Well, my name is Joshua Paul Dale, and I'm a professor of American literature at Chuo University in Tokyo. And I had been studying cuteness for several years when I started to realize it was a much more deeper topic than I thought. I mean, I began to ask myself, why did we evolve to feel cuteness in the first place? And since we can evolve to feel it, which is what the, the scientists think, then why did it only show up in culture and art and literature in certain times and in certain places? To answer those questions, I had to look into evolutionary biology, cognitive psychology to figure out, you know, where it came from and how it affects our brains and our behavior, and also in art history and uh, literary history. Now, nobody can be an expert in all of those fields. So that's when I decided that the only way to write this book is to write it as a book for a general audience, for you know, an intellectual bent, but also people who are you know curious about many things. And so that's what I decided to do. Wonderful. Thank you for giving us that introduction um, and especially kind of mentioning the many fields that it touches on um, because I want to ask you about them. <laughs> so starting with the kind of brain evolution side of things, can you walk us through domestication syndrome and how this helps us understand cuteness? Yes. Well, domestication syndrome is the set of traits that are shared by domesticated animals. And the way I got into this and thinking about its connection to cuteness was through the Siberian fox experiment. Maybe some people have heard about it. So in the 1950s, a scientist, a geneticist called uh, Dmitry Belayev decided to do an experiment on foxes. And he decided to take a large breeding population 
and then only allow the friendliest foxes to breed the next generation. So they did this, well, it's, it's, uh, experiment is ongoing, but the results were astonishing because they appeared so quickly. Um, now, it seems like they created a newly domesticated species. Their foxes eagerly approach humans and remain tame throughout their lives, and they pass that quality on to the next generation. And what's really interesting about this experiment is that it's not only the fox's behavior that's changed, their appearance has also changed. As the experiment progressed, their faces became wider, their snouts and jaws became shorter, and their teeth and legs got smaller. And some of them even got floppy ears and curly tails. So they were selected only for friendliness, nothing to do with their appearance, but they became physically cute. And that's what made me realize that cuteness is not only about appearance, it's also connected to certain behaviors. So the cool. Fox experiment shows, <laughs> sorry, that selection for a single trade, friendliness, friendliness. Uh, and we can also think of that as an ability to form cross-species bonds, which is what domesticated animals have. And that's a precondition for a cascade of neotenous changes that result in both a tame behavior and acute appearance. And I agree that, that reading about that experiment was fascinating. It does really pack a lot into that instance. So thank you for taking us through that, um, especially to kind of help us understand where we're coming from when it comes to evolution, because I think the speed, as you mentioned, is really interesting and in that the number of changes is not just one thing that eventually comes through. It happens quite quickly, um, as evidenced here. So there's clearly some evolutionary benefits then to these sorts of behavioral and appearance changes. What, what are they? Um, and are they similar for humans and other animals? Okay, well, I'm gonna. this is going to sound like a tangent, but I want to start by answering that question through the lens of neoteny. So neoteny is when juvenile traits persist into adulthood. You know, for example, wolf puppies are cute like dog puppies, but wolves get less cute as they grow older. Their appearance changes more than dogs. Adult dogs are not really so different from puppies in their appearance. And dogs also play when they're adults and can make friends with other dogs when they're adults. Wolves only really play when they're young, and they can't make friends with other adult wolves when they're adults. So neoteny encompasses both looks and behavior, and it's common to both domesticated animals and humans. Humans are the most neotenous of all mammals. I think that the youthful behaviors associated with neoteny, like curiosity and the ability to form cross-species attachments, even as adults, were important to our evolution and to that of our companion species, like dogs and cats. And uh, you can probably see the train of thought that's going on here. I'm suggesting that humans may also be domesticated like dogs and cats, though in our case, it would have been self-domestication because nobody domesticated us. Now, this theory has not been proven. Research is ongoing. But if it's true, then as we became tamer and friendlier, you know, as the sort of uh, more friendly individuals chose to breed, to have babies with each other long way back in our evolutionary past, we're talking like 100,000 years ago, then as we started to become tamer and friendlier, we started to become cuter like the Siberian foxes. And since acute appearance signaled these desirable behavioral traits like friendliness, our emotional response to cuteness intensified. It then, um, I guess one more thing to answer your question, our 
Studies show that our acuteness response peaks when babies are at about five or six months old. So I think that as we evolved into Homo sapiens and babies took longer to develop and socializing them became more important, then our acuteness response became stronger so that it peaked when it was most needed. Mm. Mm. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and as you've already demonstrated to us, right, it's not just humans, but it's also not not humans, right? There's, there's a whole bunch of species um, that go through these proce- processes, but not all of them, right? <laughs> um, right. Why some and not others? And what does this tell us about cuteness? Yeah, just over a dozen mammal species have been domesticated. Maybe we can count one more with the Siberian foxes. But there's almost 150 uh, mammalian species, so it's really not that many. It seems that most species have evolved robust traits that stand in the way of domestication. Like we could think of zebras as an example. They're pretty cute with their black and white coats, but they are highly aggressive animals. So animal domestication might have been an accident of genetics. Uh, For example, dogs. If there was a mutation that reduced the fear of strangers in a few wolves, which enabled them to bond with another species, then that mutation could have lain dormant until it was activated through human contact. In other words, a small percentage of wolves could have been genetically pre-adapted for coexistence with people. A Siberian fox experiment shows that a small percentage of foxes also had this inborn pre-adaption, and it might be part of other species' genomes genomes too, but not all species, like, for example, zebras. Hmm. That is definitely interesting to think about, um, particularly if we I don't know, I kind of imagine like little kids and what they think are cute and fun and zebras are pretty high up the list, but Mm -hmm. maybe not in real life. Uh, The toy version is probably a lot friendlier. I'd like to move then, or I suppose link this discussion we've been having about the science and the evolution of it to the kind of cultural historical side, because what you've explained to us so far is very much kind of at the species level. And from the science you're telling us, there's no reason that kind of humans, for example, in one part of the world versus humans in another would have significantly different sort of cuteness responses. Um, And in fact, I think today's world shows that, right? There's a lot of things that are cute that are cute across linguistic barriers, across national borders. There's a lot of shared frame of reference. But if we go back into the historical record, that's not super true Mm -hmm. as document in the book. So why do you think there was a lot more cuteness visible, for example, in medieval Japan and a lot less of it at the exact same time in Europe? Yeah, that's a good question. So let's start with Europe. And it's hard to prove a negative, but I think it has a lot to do with religion. This is only my theory. Uh, The Judeo-Christian worldview firmly separated humans and nature and put humans on top as masters of nature. And when animals were depicted in European art at that time, their symbolic value, you know, what what they meant for humans was most important. And in terms of children, I mean, of course, parents in Europe loved their children and presumably enjoyed their cute antics as well. But they also wanted to instill moral, moral values from the earliest possible age because they were worried about their children going to hell if they died which happened all too often in an age of high child mortality. And plus, the the doctrine of original sin was still strong. But in Japan, uh, Buddhism had arrived from China, but the earlier uh, animist Shinto tradition was still very much in play. So 
the Japanese believed that animals and certain objects had souls or spirit. And also animals had a close association, close association with the many, many gods that are still worshipped in Japan. And of course, they'd never heard of original sin. So children had a certain kind of entertainment value for adults that they didn't attain in Europe until centuries later. Hmm. Very interesting to do that comparison. Um, and I'd like to kind of continue the idea of comparison, but this time just within Japan, because uh, you detail in the book some of the kind of earliest um, literary and pop culture, I suppose we could call it, ways that cuteness was documented and discussed in Japanese culture. Um, and it's pretty old, but a lot of the things that are described then as being cute, I think would still be considered cute today, which is really interesting because everything else has changed, right? Everything else about what our beauty standards, how society is organized, um, have changed a lot. And yet we still seem to think kind of the same things are cute. Why do you think those conceptions have been so consistent if we look at Japanese culture? Yeah, that was really remarkable to me as well. And there, there are articulations of a cute aesthetic that go back a thousand years in Japan. And there are visual artworks that also strike us as very cute today. So that, that was the question, like, how to account for this? How can it be so consistent over time when, as you pointed out, everything else has changed? And I think I'll trace that consistency first to the fact that cuteness is an emotional affect. So when you see something cute, you feel a certain emotion that seems to be, I mean, as I hesitate, as all academics would, to say the word universal. But so far, the scientific uh, studies have shown that people in many, many cultures today pretty much report the same uh, effective reaction to the same basic set of features. It's not entirely, I mean, we're not like machines, so people have individual preferences and different cultures are different, but there's a kind of link you can make. So I think the emotion of cuteness has a consistency that I put down to its importance to human evolution. You know, the reason that we are triggered by the same characteristics is, is because it was important when we evolved. Children needed to be taken care of, but also needed to be socialized. And I think that cuteness was really important to that. So we have this consistent emotional response to cuteness because this response is triggered by the same general and definable set of characteristics we call it the child schema, and includes things like a relatively large head and uh, large and low-lying eyes, bulging cheeks, short arms and legs, and also a kind of clumsy movements and a kind of springy elastic consistency. And that means that aesthetics of cuteness should be broadly similar, even if they erupt at different times in different places. So in Japan, cuteness appeared 900 to 1,000 years ago, for a few, few reasons. One was that women's literature became established during that period. And one of the main or one of the best articulations of the cute aesthetic came from, say, Shonagon's book, the, the Pillow Book, which was written at that time. And also the Japanese relationship to animals lent itself to anthropomorphism because of this long established spiritual tradition that didn't put humans over animals in a hierarchy. As they as was done in Europe. Hmm. Thank you for explaining that. Um, I think it's a fascinating puzzle uh, and very well worth the investigation. As is, I think, kind of the next section that you cover, sort of moving on from that earlier cuteness tradition in Japan. Um, obviously, at some point, Europe catches up 
um, and starts mm-hmm. to think of things as cute in a similar way. At that point, to what extent do we see sort of influence back and forth, Japanese ideas of cuteness coming into Western art and literature, Western ideas going back into Japan? What sorts of, um, I suppose, cultural exchange do we see on this point? Well, cuteness in Japan really flowered during the Edo period, which began in 1603 and lasted until uh, Commodore Perry forcibly opened up Japan to trade. But there wasn't much Western, I mean, there was a Western influence in Japan during that time, even though it was close to trade. But I can't really find any direct influence on the the developing kawaii aesthetic at that time. Um, but the late 19th, early 20th century, there is more influence. And at that time, Japan was embracing European-style nationalism, which had a horrible result uh, and led to, to decades of war in Japan's case and neighboring countries. But in the process of adopting this European-style nationalism, they began to stress education, as countries in Europe were doing as well. And girls especially benefited from this. So they set up universal education, and they put girls and boys in different schools. Because girls were educated separately from boys, they were more easily able to develop their own culture. And the modern kawaii aesthetic developed from the magazines and then later on manga, that were the main visual components of this girl's culture. And there was a lot of Western influence in the magazine illustrations. So uh, illustrations included women wearing Western clothes and makeup, and also there were graphic motifs like strawberries, a foreign imported product. So kawaii developed as girl's culture, and it sort of pointed towards the outside. At the same time, it was a continuation of this aesthetic that had been around in Japan for a really, really long time. Now, moving forward a little bit into uh, the 20s and 30s, kawaii also had a broader audience. It was not only girls' culture. For example, Disney animation was a really huge hit in Japan from the start. And even before that, there were some international cute hit products like the Cupid doll. So Cupid dolls were first designed by Rosie O'Neill, an American uh, artist, and they were first made in Germany in Bisk pottery. But they were quickly imitated by Japanese manufacturers in celluloid and then later plastic. And QP mayonnaise in Japan adopted the character as the face of its brand in 1925, and they've kept it to this day. Okay, now I've got to go to the opposite side of your question, where you asked uh, how <laughs> Japanese ideas made their way to Europe. And unfortunately, uh, kawaii was taken up along with the racist stereotypes that were present at the time. So the stereotype of Japanese people, all Japanese people, as sort of small and adorable was really widespread. I mean, you can think of Gilbert and Sullivan's The Mikado and the Three Little Maids from School. Um, Japan was just considered to be full of innocent, happy, childlike people who lived aesthetically pleasing lives close to nature. I mean, it's just full of stereotypes. But the Western world was just enamored of this image, and Japan was called an Eastern Eden. But all of that was just a product of an orientalizing imagination. Uh, I could go on (laughs) for at length, but maybe we should stop there and go on to the next question. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. 
Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Fair enough. Um, I think there's a lot of fascinating examples there. Um, but yeah, just just a taste might be relevant. Oh, um, sure. Of course, this is a good moment, I think, to point out to listeners that the book has loads of detail. So if you're intrigued by anything you've heard at this point, um, the book has lots more. So uh, definitely recommend that to people intrigued. Um, But as you said, I think we'll kind of move slightly on in our highlights tour of the ideas of the book. And can we talk a bit about European art Um, and specifically art aesthetics that change the way cuteness is portrayed, I suppose. Um, And I I found this particularly fascinating, kind of bringing together uh, the idea of art and popular culture, as you've just talked a bit about, but also what you were speaking about earlier in terms of the influence of um, Christianity and uh, kind of concepts of original sin and childhood and what that meant. So can you tell us about what changes in European art um, in, you know, around 17th, 18th centuries and what this has to do with cuteness? Okay, sure. Yeah. Well, first of all, uh, first of all, there were Enlightenment philosophers like Locke and Rousseau who talked about children as being basically innocent. This was not really a new idea, but it had, you know, been always been weighed in terms of or against the doctrine of original sin. But the idea that children were innocent looks innocent slowly sort of gained hold and then really caught people's imagination in the 18th century, and you can see it in portraits of children. Uh, they became well, more realistic as artists learn, you know, drop the medieval idea of depicting children in paintings as looking like small adults, started to make them more realistic, but also really bought into this new uh, value of innocence. And there were also several social changes that informed the emergence of the modern idea of childhood in the, especially the 18th and 19th centuries. The importance of education was emphasized, and children were less often put to work at as young an age as possible. And that turned them in from an economic asset into a liability because they weren't helping to support the family anymore. So parents sought to limit the, their family size because of that, and children cost money instead of earning it. And also, very gradually, uh, child mortality started to go down. And then the romantic movement in literature and art further spread the idea that children were essentially pure and innocent. Uh, but I do want to point out that this romantic image of the innocent child that is reflected in 18th century portraiture is not exactly our modern cute aesthetic. It was a really elevated aesthetic. I mean, the children in those portraits seem kind of almost like angels. Um, The main aesthetic that was guiding Western works of art was the beautiful. And so the pure and innocent children who appear in portraits at this time lack the kind of familiar and approachable warmth that we now associate with cuteness. Hmm. Yes, definitely looking at paintings of children at this period is sometimes very eerie. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, Definitely not what we would think of now with um, sharing like baby photos and that kind of thing. Can we move then further in time towards, you know, to help close this gap between the vaguely creepy portraits um, and now, can we move further in time and across the Atlantic Ocean what is happening in the 19th century in North America that helps us move towards more current 
aesthetics and expressions of cuteness? Yeah, so I've already talked about some of the social changes that were ongoing, and they accelerated in the 19th century. Things like fewer children working, more going to school, and that meant, and also child mortality rates going down and birth rates going down, that meant that childhood became more highly valued in society. And parents began to lavish attention on the few children that they had, which were more likely to survive. And also nuclear families became more common as people moved to the cities for work. And in the Victorian age, the mother-child relationship in particular became closer and more idealized. Then we move into the early 20th century. And at this point, children become the symbol of a new optimistic age. I mean, right at the onset, the 20th century was called the century of the child. And advertisements featuring energetic, cute children were really all the rage. A lot of famous advertisements like Campbell's Soup Kids in North America started at this time. So this new cute aesthetic was the older idea of the innocent child melded with the new image of the child as a kind of funny trickster with lots of happy energy. And people just found this enormously appealing. And the cute aesthetic, that's the modern cute aesthetic in a nutshell, and that's when it really took off. Hmm. And take off it very much did. Um, And there's I think so many different ways we think about this, so many different ways it's expressed, um, and to some extent, different words used as well. Uh, but I'd like to ask about a word that I think is probably quite well known even beyond Japan um, as exemplifying many of the things that we've been discussing. The word kawaii, um, or kawaii, depending on where you are. Where does the word come from, and how has it evolved over time? I think I wasn't aware it had evolved particularly much, so that was fascinating. Um What does this evolution tell us about changing ideas of cuteness? Well, it's a, it came in a common usage relatively recently, like uh, early 20th century. The word itself had been around before that, but it's a little bit hard to trace the history of kawaii because it doesn't really appear in uh, literature very much. It wasn't written down. But there's a very interesting entry in a Japanese Portuguese dictionary from 1603. So these were, um, I think, Portuguese missionaries. must have been just before they were all kicked out of Japan when the Christians were expelled. And they were trying to compile a dictionary, the vernacular, Japanese as it was spoken by common people. And they have this word that really sounds like the modern kawaii. It's a little bit more connected to emotions like sympathy and compassion. Well, it still is today. Um, But it's just moved more towards the cute side today. So there's an indication that kawaii might have been around for considerably longer than was thought before, but as a common word used by ordinary people. So that would make it a kind of bottom-up aesthetic, bubbling up from the bottom. And it kind of makes sense to me because I I mentioned that cuteness was flourishing in the Edo period, and you can really see it in Japanese woodblock prints. And woodblock prints were a way that... uh, people without much money could afford to buy a piece of art because they were cheap. And a lot of the population was illiterate at that time. So themes that were immediately understandable were really popular. And cuteness is something that everyone can understand just when they look at it right away. So that's one reason that uh, it began to spread. Then you also ask about changing ideas of cuteness. So there's one interesting thing about modern kawaii, and this is only in the last few decades, you know, Japan sort of became infused with the kawaii, uh, really started to build up in the 1970s, and then 
all through the 80s. It kind of spread from girls and women's culture to culture at large. And a few decades ago, it began to spawn all of these compound terms, like there's grotesque cute, or lazy cute, or gross cute, or, you know, creepy cute, or ugly cute. Um, and these, when I say that, you know, you might imagine things that are mostly creepy or mostly ugly, but that's not the way that they percolate through Japanese society. These things are still kawaii in the f- sense that most people still feel cuteness when they look at them, although not everybody. Um, it was like, I mean, I don't know exactly why these terms started to spread, but I think people were sort of maybe getting a little bit tired or jaded with so much cuteness around, and they were looking at for new ways to enjoy this very familiar emotion. So they started putting it together with other words and making new kinds of cute. And that has just snowballed. And now there's like 20 of these terms that are everywhere. Which is a very interesting uh, evolution from kind of the, wait, where did this even come from to now there's so much of it. Uh, and I think that's true for so much of what you've uh, told us about so far. Uh, and it makes it really interesting, right? Cuteness isn't one thing now. We don't even just have one word for it. So given kind of where we're currently at, what might the future or futures, plural, of cuteness look like? I think it's, I mean, again, of course, this is speculation, obviously, but I really think it's going to be a combination of robotics and AI. And the reason I say that is that Japan has been making cute robots for a while now. Uh, One example would be Sony's robot dog, the Aibo. Uh, That came out in the early 2000s, and there's a a new iteration of it out now, which is even cuter than before. So, And Japan also makes another really interesting robot that's called the Lovot, uh, a combination of love and robot. And it looks kind of like a small imaginary animal, I suppose, Um, but it was very deliberately designed to be cute. They had a kawaii team among their engineers that connected with the software and hardware teams to make sure that every part of it was cute. So this robot is about the size or the size and weight of a baby, and it's heated, so it's warm to the touch. And it doesn't talk, but it sort of coos and laughs. So these are the kinds of robots that Japan is working on. So I was wondering, what happens when they really combine these robots with AI and really use the power of these large, huge data sets to train these robots? If you think about the robot dog, Sony's Aibo, like already it's collected, uh, both of these robots are have cloud connectivity and they are using deep learning models. But what happens if, I have no idea if Sony's planning this, but what happens if Sony trains its robot dog on every single cute uh, animal video that's ever been uploaded to YouTube or TikTok? In that case, you could have a robot dog that would always be able to survive you, to surprise you. <laughs> it would also survive you because they'll live forever. Well, always be able to surprise you with some like new and interesting, cute behavior that you never thought of before. Because the main problem with these things is that people get bored with them. So I think the combination of robots, robotics plus AI could possibly result in robots that are so many different, interesting and cute behaviors that we never become bored. That's where I see the future of cuteness. Hmm. All right. Well, I think there's going to be a lot of eyes at um, subsequent kind of unveilings of Japanese robots. Uh, So definitely a good thing to look out for in that kind of big picture sense. Staying on the topic of the future, but perhaps at a more micro level, uh, now that this book is out in the world, 
there's so many things I could imagine you pursuing just from this book alone as a next project. Um, but is there anything you're working on now or next, even if it's not a book, even if it's not about cuteness that you'd like to preview? Well, I just finished writing a book. So my goal is to like have a life at this point. <laughs> Fair, so, good goal. Um, yes, I do have a full-time job as a professor. So I will be you know, applying for research grants in the field of cuteness. Uh, that is true. Uh, but right now I'm kind of trying to just enjoy myself and uh, just relax. <laughs> so, you know, really there's no definite projects that I've been working on that I can mention. I would maybe point out one thing. Uh, recently, Somerset House in London has launched this major exhibition on cuteness. It will be going until early April uh, 2024, if anybody's interested. And it's really, really interesting to see how they've gotten so many contemporary artists that are using cuteness in their artworks. So I am looking forward to visiting that exhibition and spending quite a bit of time there in March, and I'm going to do research there. Um, so maybe that's my one of my next areas is the connection of contemporary art and cuteness. And I'd oh. highly recommend people to check it out. Wonderful. Well, thank you for leaving us with that recommendation. And of course, uh, anyone who's intrigued not only by that, but by the book we've been discussing. The title is Irresistible, How Cuteness Wired Our Brains and Conquered the World. Joshua, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Oh, thank you very much for having me.